0: Welcome to Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, dean of faculty and professor of Christian ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, professor of Christian
1: apologetics.
0: We're here today with one of our faculty colleagues in Old Testament, Dr. Charlie Trim, who's done a lot of work in his background on the whole subject of divine violence uh, and sort of tackling some of the issues, some of the hard Issues that that revolve around the use of violence in the Old Testament that, that that portray God to some people portray him in a very negative light. He's got his latest book is entitled "The Destruction of the Canaanites: God, Genocide, and Biblical Interpretation." And here Charlie tackles, I think, one of, in my view, the most challenging ethical issue in the entire Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are the places where. Uh, Depending on how you read the text, uh, God may be commanding genocide, Uh, and our intuitions tell us that if genocide is immoral and God's commanding it, then we've got a really big theological problem to deal with. So Charlie's tackled this head on uh, and given us a, a, a a good landscape of what the options are for trying to resolve this moral tension. So Charlie, welcome. Really glad to have you
2: with us. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, so tell us, I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of your academic career on, on some of these really difficult subjects related to divine violence, but what, are, what originally sparked your interest in this subject?
2: Well, this is a story that will show how random things are sometimes behind the scenes in academia. When I was working on dissertation at Wheaton College under Dan Block, my initial topic was intertextuality between Numbers and Deuteronomy, but there were far too many texts, and so we narrowed it down to military stories. And then as I was doing work on it, the military part took over, and the intertextuality went away, and I never got back to it. And so my dissertation was on Yahweh as a divine warrior in the Exodus narrative. And as I came here to Biola and started teaching on divine violence, the students naturally wanted to learn more about the Canaanites as well. And so I kind of backed into this topic in some ways in academic terms.
1: What's the core moral issue at stake in this discussion, and how big of an issue is it for a lot of students you engage with at Biola and beyond? Now, Scott basically
2: summed it up in the introduction. We seemingly have God commanding genocides, and we all feel genocide's wrong, and God is loving and kind, so that can't be, right? What's going on here? And so for the majority of my students, this is a major issue. I don't need to spend a lot of time convincing them. Here's something you should be concerned about, uh, they, they come in knowing like this is something that is deeply troubling. How do we think about this?
0: So they come with this question already already in the forefront of their minds.
2: the vast majority of them, or at least as soon as they start reading the text, they immediately have questions about this.
0: okay, so I think one of the helpful things in your book was there there there's some things that you lay out that we just need to know about how warfare was conducted in biblical times in order to to understand this. This segment of scripture better. What are some of those things that we need to know about warfare in, in the Old Testament?
2: Yeah, the first chapter of the book is an overview of how warfare functioned in the ancient Near East. Uh, this draws on a, a larger reference work that I wrote uh, surveying this topic as well. Uh, there are several things that could be noted here, but the really important one is the use of hyperbole. And so clearly when ancient Near Eastern kings talk about warfare, there's a lot of hyperbole involved, whether it's numbers or the extent of the victory. Now, it doesn't seem like they made up stuff entirely, so they don't make up battles or anything like that, but they will certainly make their victories look more conclusive than they actually are and so on. And so that plays an important role in thinking about the military stories in the Bible. So so
0: they don't portray themselves as winning battles that they actually lost, uh, but maybe just exaggerating what already took place.
2: Correct. For the most part. There's a few that they claim victory to, or we have... A few battles where both sides claim victory in different terms, and so on.
0: Okay, so l- let's maybe let's get our definitions straight here. What ex- what exactly do you mean by the term genocide? Uh, do you, do you go by sort of the standard human rights definitions of that, or do you understand that differently?
2: So, genocide is a very contentious term to define. Uh, there is a UN definition of genocides that many people. Go with. Uh, However, one commonality among genocide scholars tends to be they all disagree with it in some way. And so they all want to tweak it some different way. But the core definition that most people would agree with is genocide is not about numbers. It's not about how many people you kill, but it's about killing or destroying a group identity. So it's because of a membership in a group that the death or the attacks, whatever it is, happens. And so it's that group
1: identity part that is core to the idea of genocide. So obvious example would be World War II, wiping out the Jews as a group is an example of genocide. Would you say genocide occurred in the Old Testament? Because there seems to be certain commands like wipe out the Amalekites, for example.
2: Yeah. When you use the word genocide, A modern idea and bring it into the ancient Near East, it's it's a bit difficult. I don't think there's a lot of genocide technically in the ancient Near East, um, because even though the Assyrians and the Egyptians and so on can be pretty lethal, they don't tend to kill people just because they're part of a group Identity. Um, And so they'll fight the group if they rebel, for example, but they're not going to wipe someone out just because they're part of this other group. So I don't think genocide in that sense is widespread in the ancient Near East. And even in the Old Testament, finding genocides could be a bit difficult um, because you have stories like Rahab or Caleb, who's a Canaanite, and they convert and they are welcomed into Israel in a variety of ways. And so ethnic background doesn't seem to play a role. The one place you could make the argument is with religion. And the UN Convention on Genocide explicitly includes religion and clearly the Old Testament is opposed to Canaanite religion.
0: So Charlie, you approach these, these problematic texts in the Old Testament with a certain set of assumptions. What, what are you assuming that, that uh, sort of governs the way you approach the, the biblical text on these, on these matters?
2: In this particular book, I don't make a lot of assumptions, I'm just presenting the views. And then that allows me to see what scholars are saying all across the board. Many of them I disagree with in a variety of ways. And so when it comes to what I actually think uh, in the book, I didn't present that. And it tends to be that I've hidden myself pretty well and you wouldn't be able to figure out what I think just based on reading the book. Uh, now that the book's published, uh, I don't mind talking about what I believe, um, but the the assumptions I would begin with, um, as an evangelical one who teaches here at Biola, uh, things like the inspiration of Scripture are obviously going to be important for me when thinking through these texts.
0: So Charlie, maybe another another way to ask this question is, what what's the o- the overall framework that you're using to approach these problematic texts? seems to me the, this constitutes a lot of your starting place for this, and it's the way that you evaluate different views. So what what is that framework?
2: The framework is these four different statements. So number one, God is good and compassionate. Number two, the Old Testament is a faithful record of God's dealings with humanity and favorably portrays Yahweh's actions. Number three, the Old Testament describes events that are similar to genocide. Number four, mass killings are always evil. And so these four statements— can't all be true. And so, in order to move forward with this, scholars tend to reject any one of them so that the other statements can cohere. And so, I arrange things based essentially on which one of these do you
1: reject. That's really helpful because there's only so many options that people can take regardless of their theological or philosophical commitments. And some resolve this tension by just saying if God commands genocide. Or something that looks like mass killing, he cannot possibly be good. And of course, that would give up believing in God, at least any God closely resembling the God of the Bible. You say that's costly. What would be the costs of giving
2: that up? There's a variety of different kinds of costs. Uh, one would be a social cost, especially for those who grew up in the church and then leave the church. Uh, there's going to be friendships left behind, communities left behind. Uh, John Marriott, uh, Biola grad, has done extensive work on deconversion, and he interviews many people. And this tends to be a thing that comes up very often is the social cost of leaving these communities behind. But there's also the intellectual moral cost, in a sense, of needing to find new grounds for morality. And so you can't use religion anymore, image of God, and so on. And so to say genocide, for example, is wrong, you would have to find new grounds to reject that, which Many atheists, of course, uh, have good reasons for their views, but you do have to shift your reasonings in in that case.
1: I want to make sure our listeners are tracking with us. This is not an apologetic book in which you're saying, here's why God commands or allows mass killing. What you're doing is walking through different options in kind of an educational approach, almost like letting viewers kind of make up their own mind, so to speak. So I want to make sure that if people pick this up, they're not going to expect just an apologetic, here's exactly how you answer it. Because even Christian apologists committed to the things that you're talking about will answer this differently. It's a guide to think Christianly and biblically and weigh the pros and cons of different positions. So you're writing as a good educator does to just walk people through options and, in a sense, think for themselves about it. So that's really the strength of, of the book as I see it.
0: Okay. So uh, option one, we reject the notion that God is good. Okay, That's a pretty costly one. Uh, and I think that's, that's actually costly for the whole enterprise of morality, uh, because as we've talked about on this program before, nat- naturalistic grounds for morality are on shaky ground at, at best. And so for people who want to hold on to universal hum- human rights and condemn genocide as it takes place today, uh, give, giving up theism makes that a lot more challenging to do. Uh, now others we resolve this they resolve this tension a little differently, and they do that by, by basically by distancing the God of, the God of the Old Testament from these violent acts. They, I, I think our listeners would be interested to know how you, how does that play out and you know what, what does that look like?
2: There's a variety of ways of doing this. Uh, one is simply to say these violent acts in the Old Testament didn't happen and so therefore it's not an ethical problem. But the more common one is to take a Christocentric approach. That is, to look at the life of Jesus and to say, if Jesus reveals God to us, then who is God according to Jesus? And if we think of Jesus as pacifistic, as anti-violence in the Gospels, then the next jump would be to say, okay, in the Old Testament, then anything where God commits an act of violence, that's not truly God. This is something to be rejected. So Greg Boyd, Eric Seibert are two prominent names who propose such a way of reading the Old Testament. And so this disconnects God, a pacifistic God, uh, in the view of Seibert and Boyd, from these violent actions in the Old Testament. So this
0: is actually, it's a little different view than saying that the Old Old Testament just simply as a historical record is not accurate, and therefore we can be skeptical about whether these things actually took place because we have we have doubts about the veracity of the Old Testament as a book of history. This is a different more it's a theological view that under that
2: underpins that correct, and this is one point of difference between cyber and Boyd Boyd's more optimistic about the historicity of the Old Testament. Cyber is less optimistic, but they both. Use Jesus as a lens to interpret the Old Testament and
1: to reject the violence there as divine in origin. So, we talked about the option of getting rid of God, but then that leaves the challenge of like where does objective moral values and duties come from? Uh, The second option, kind of this, I think you said like a cruciform approach, crucicentric. What would maybe be a downside or criticism of that? Would it just be that it ignores how Jesus handled the Old Testament and that Jesus seems to be a judge in Revelation and taught things like hell? Like, What might be a criticism of that view? Yeah, there's a few
2: corollaries that go along with it. One is your view of Scripture. So most people in this category reject inerrancy. Uh, They'll sometimes reject this entire text from the Old Testament. And so... Uh, Many people would have difficulties accepting this view based on their view of the Bible. Uh, Another problem would be just thinking about eschatological violence. Uh, To a certain extent, accepting this view leads you to universalism. It's it's hard to have any kind of judgment and say that God is nonviolent. And so Eric Seibert finds a way to make an argument for a distinction. Uh, He says... It's out of the space-time continuum, so it's not God's true character, but that that seems hard to defend. And so I think to be consistent, to have a nonviolent God leads to something like universalism with no judgment ever for anyone.
0: Hey, now there's a third. there's a third way that you point out to resolve this tension, and that is to suggest that what what God is actually commanding here is something other than genocide. Uh, so what what might that something other be if it's not genocide?
2: This is where looking at warfare in the ancient near east is helpful because we tend to read biblical text at face value as we take them, and it sounds really brutal. But we need to read it as genres from the ancient Near East and military texts in the ancient near East use hyperbole. And so to read them well would seem to indicate we would expect the presence of hyperbole. And we can see this in the Old Testament in several places. Deuteronomy 7 says, destroy them all and make sure you don't intermarry with them, which (laughs) doesn't seem to go together very well. Uh, Joshua 10 talks about wiping them all out and the remnant going back to the city. So pretty clearly there's hyperbole going on here. So the argument could be made that it sounds bad, but when read... As an ancient Near Eastern text, we're just describing normal military battles. We're not talking about genocide.
0: So this would be something like a, you know, a hyperbole to, say what something like a, you know, he's commanding a a very decisive victory, sort of leave no doubt, who the victor is, something like that.
2: Correct. It's an extensive victory in military terms. The enemy is clearly crushed, but we're not talking about killing kids or something like that. It's the enemy was defeated decisively. And the hyperbole shows
1: that in ancient or Eastern genre. So when it specifically says kill men, women, children, and infants, this interpretation is going to say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Of course, that doesn't mean it's false. We always have to interpret words like I get that point. But would they say there was no slaughter of kids and children at all Is that how they far they would take it? Uh, I can't speak for them, but probably many of them would say
2: that. So okay. you can think of it as a metaphor, and you don't interpret metaphors literally. And if you do, you misread them. And so this is similar. This is a figure of speech, meaning everyone. And so not everyone, you can make the argument, maybe it's just a military encampment, and so you kill everyone there. There's no kids there. And so no kids are killed. Or it's extensive. Um, once again, not everyone, but the the entirety of the people,
1: not every single person, but large portions of them are killed. So this doesn't mitigate God causing violence. If you have an issue with God causing violence, this doesn't get God off the hook. It just looks less like genocide and looks more like appropriate whatever that means, warfare, given the context in which it occurred. Correct. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. So you still have things like the flood, which would involve obviously killing men, women, and children. It would seem that it wouldn't totally get God off the hook if you take the entirety of the Old Testament on the very criticisms it's meant to get God off the hook from.
2: The difference would be in this case, God commands Israelite soldiers to kill the children. And so with the flood, it's God doing it himself. In this case, we have Israelite soldiers commanded to do it. So that would be one difference that's brought up between those two cases.
0: Okay. Is, that, is that a morally relevant difference? Yeah, it's a good question.
2: Things like PTSD and so on is brought in. Is, is moral injury done to the Israelite soldiers if they're commanded to do it? So is there like an extra layer of moral damage done in a way that is not true of the flood? These are some of the arguments that are brought up.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, It seems, seems to me we use hyperbole like this. Today too, this is not not an ancient Near Eastern thing exclusively, because I, you know, Sean, I've heard you talk about your son's your son's basketball team annihilating their opponents. <laughs> sure, I think you know, but you know, you don't mean that, you know, that they killed they killed all their opponents. That they, right. they, they achieved a decisive victory, mm-hmm. uh, and even you know, even when we say to people. You know before a you know before a game or so, we say, don't go don't take any prisoners. which is a figure, again, a figure of speech for annihilation, which is a figure for you know a very decisive victory. we don't we don't mean anything even remotely literal to that. If that's the case here, then what what exactly is God commanding the Israelites to do to to their enemies?
2: So the historical reconstruction then it would be less killing them all and more banishing them. And so the banishing language— dr-
0: driving them out of the land. Correct. Something like that. And
2: that does show up both in the commands, uh, say in Exodus, as well as a few places in Joshua and Judges where people are talked about as banished. And so it's less killing them all and more removing them from Canaan so that Israel can live there and serve Yahweh.
0: Okay. Now others—there's a, there's a fourth group uh, that takes— these texts as a li- something akin to a literal genocide, and the, the, then their task is more of a, a philosophical one as opposed to an exegetical one, where, they, where their task is really to justify this on moral grounds. How, how is that normally
2: done? There's a variety of different arguments here. One common one is to emphasize how the Canaanites are evil. And so this is discussed in books like Leviticus and so on. And so therefore this judgment is not random, but it's specifically uh, for them because they are evil. Uh, The flood parallel has already been mentioned. uh, So that's an important one as well. The idea that it's not the Canaanites who are the enemy, but sin, uh, because when Israel starts acting like Canaan, God treats them the same way. So we see this in the book of Judges. Mm. Uh, And so it's not an ethnic thing. It's God's going to fight sin wherever he finds it, including among his own people. And so there's a variety of arguments like that that defend God for this particular seemingly very violent act.
1: Do you have any sense, this might be outside the scope of your book, how throughout history have most church historians and philosophers and theologians addressed this? Or Is it more of a modern issue in the past 100 and 150 years that people were not wrestling with just given how culture has changed?
2: Now, this has definitely been something that the church has struggled with in a variety of ways. So some of the early church heretics who rejected the Old Testament, this is very much on their mind, Uh, Marcion, for example. And people have suggested views similar to these throughout church history. Uh, View three, the hyperbole one, might be the least common throughout church history, uh, but the other three are amply represented throughout mm. church history in a variety of ways
1: could there be more of what I, for lack of a better term i was having a conversation i with frank beckwith maybe seven or eight years ago and he goes you know the older i get the more i just think if god if, if jesus we look at his view of the old testament is okay with this and he see things sees things clearly then i'm okay with it i don't know why but if jesus is good and we see through a glass darkly I'm okay with that. And Frank, sorry if it's been eight years, if I didn't perfectly access your point, but I remember thinking, well, that's that's interesting. Would that be a fifth position or how would you fit in that kind of a response to this approach?
2: I think that could go with several positions, uh, perhaps most easily with category four. Most proponents of category four talk about how they don't feel fully satisfied with it, Mm. but they often end with something like this. And so I end my book with a a variety of things like that one uh, lament where you bring your complaints to God. And laments are usually like, my life is not going well, God, why have you abandoned me and so on. But I think you can make an argument that sometimes biblical texts you could bring to God and say, God, I don't like this text. What, what, Why did you put this text here? And then wrestle with God over this text. Um, and the essential part there is, of course, you're still in communication with God about this. The New Testament text that helps me the most, I think, is John 6, where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And large numbers of people leave. And he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter's response is, you have the words of life and i think the subtext there is peter saying i have no idea what you're talking about i really don't like it but where else am i going to go you have the words of life and i think this is the response for many in category 4 as well as some other categories as well of i think this is the best answer for me but there's still some sense of mystery i'm not quite sure what's going on but god you have the words of life and i'm going to continue following you with that and to to keep that intention in a sense and be okay with not having all of the definitive answers to solve all your problems.
1: Obviously, Biola, we're committed to inerrancy, inspiration of scripture, uh, the historical reliability of the New Testament and the Old Testament. But as you look at these four options, obviously, option number one is out for any kind of mere Christianity because it rejects the existence and goodness of God. Would you say the other three are at least Live options for somebody who's a Christian and a follower of Jesus, even if we would differ with them over inspiration, inerrancy, and important topics? Or would any of you, them, you say these are actually out of bounds for a broadly speaking Christ follower? Yeah,
2: thinking of big tent Christianity, I think any of those three are valid options. Uh, I, I have, there's problems with each of them, uh, but I think in big tent terms, any one of those three is a, a valid option.
0: You've said now Now that the book is out, uh, you're less reluctant to state your own view of this. Are you, are you open to telling our audience here what, what view you think is the most plausible here?
2: Sure, I, I can do that. I've been on several podcasts, and no one has asked me that yet, so this will be the first one. How thing. interesting. <laughs> uh, as Sean just mentioned, I'm here at Biola, and I share Biola's beliefs about Scripture, and so therefore, Category 2... Uh, does not appeal to me um, because of the, the various moves required to make uh, with Scripture. So I personally would reject Category 2. Once again, I think it's a valid option for Jesus followers, uh, but it's not one I follow myself. I think the hyperbole option is certainly uh, a good one. Uh, hyperbole is clearly in the text, and I think it's really helpful when thinking about this. But I also don't think that it solves the problem by itself, Um, because basically what we end up with is instead of genocide, you have ethnic cleansing of a nation being removed. So we might have lowered the ethical problem, but the ethical problem is still there. More work needs to be done to defend what God is doing. And so I then turn to category four and some of those arguments. The, The one that I find most helpful is eschatological judgment. So in a sense, it's a picture of the judgment we all face, The land of Canaan becomes, in New Testament and various traditions, a picture of heaven crossing the Jordan, going to New Jerusalem, and so on. And so this, the conquest of Canaan, is the opposite side of that eschatologically, where you have the eschatological judgment then uh, enacted in history against the Canaanites. And so, in a sense, this is eschatological judgment breaking into history in a way that's early. And so the Canaanites are evil. They're not innocent bystanders. Um, But I, I find this to be one of the more helpful ways of thinking about what's happening in this particular incident.
1: Charlie, some apologetic and theological issues, I think, are pretty tidy. We have pretty straightforward, for lack of a better term, just clean responses that are reasonable. This is not super tidy. How do a lot of your students respond? Do they appreciate that like, oh, I don't have to have it nailed down and I have these different options? Or is it like, wait a minute, we don't know definitively? How do they tend to respond to this approach?
2: Yeah, there are definitely some students who get upset with me because I don't tell them the answer. Uh, I make them read books and sort through things and discuss in class long before I tell them what I actually think. I do tell them eventually what I think. Sure, But they want a much more definitive answer. They want me to tell them the answer. And my guess is this is going to be the major critique of the book, is that I don't tell readers what the answer is, because I'm bringing them on a journey. I want them to see the options and sort through it themselves and so on. But many students respond well in the sense of they appreciate, like as you were saying, the difficulty of the topic. And knowing that there's different options and having the freedom to sort through it for themselves, even within category three and four, there's several different legitimate ways of doing it, of looking at this issue. Uh, and so I find students tend to resonate pretty well with this approach of bringing them along the journey and helping them think through it for themselves.
0: So Charlie, I, I, this, this approach I think is really helpful. Uh, and Sean, I appreciate the, the, the question because this, this really is not neat and tidy. It's not. Uh, there's yeah. just not. There's not one answer that satisfies everybody, or is, mm. is entirely without without its demerits. But uh, you know, overall, you're you're really in this book. You're doing in the book what I think you do in your classes a lot of times. You're taking students on an intellectual journey. And what what do you want readers of this ultimately to take away from this particular intellectual journey that you've had them on?
2: My goal would be. So obviously, to think through the issues, um, not necessarily to come up with a definitive answer, but to know that there are possible answers. And sometimes in some of these seemingly intractable issues, that might be the best that some people can do, just to know that there are possible answers and not be entirely sure which one is correct. But knowing there's a variety of possible answers is sufficient grounds for continuing to trust that Jesus has the words of life. And so to participate in the journey, uh, to think through the options, to have their faith strengthened, perhaps to come to a definitive answer for themselves, these are all things that I would hope um, readers would engage in and perhaps do more reading. Uh, the footnotes are full of other books. Perhaps find one that you resonate with, perhaps find one you disagree with, and dive into the topic more for those who are interested.
0: I think that's helpful too because I I you yeah, I know you're you're not pretending that this is the last word on the subject by any stretch but it is a really good place to start for somebody who wants to get an introduction to this very sticky wicket uh when it comes to our understanding of of God in in the Old Testament in particular. So I want to commend to our listeners, Charlie Trim, The Destruction of the Canaanites, subtitled God, Genocide, and Biblical Interpretation. It's a really good work done by a first-rate scholar. Uh, and Charlie, I appreciate the, the intellectual journey that you're going to take people on. Uh, and just remember, as you, as you pick up this book, uh, if you're looking for one definitive answer, uh, then you're, ask, you're asking Charlie to do something that he hasn't set out to do in the book. So we hope you we hope you find it useful and profitable. We'd highly recommend it for you. So Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a really good conversation, and I especially appreciate the way you framed this for us, and helped us see the the issues clearly and what the options are and, and where they are where they are plausible and where they have shortcomings.
2: Thanks for the conversation. Yeah,
0: this has been a great a great episode. Uh, just to get a chance to talk through a, a, what I think is one of the trickiest, most difficult subjects in all of uh, apologetics and biblical study. So this has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully Online, my, co- my co-host, Sean, teaches in that program regularly uh, and actually covers subjects like this in some of his classes. Visit biola.edu Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our colleague, Dr. Charlie Trim, please give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.